0: Remain standing for our gospel lesson from John 4. Listen carefully to the gospel of God. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize, but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. But he needed to go through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now, Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, Jesus answered and said to her, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water that I may may not thirst, nor come here to draw. Thus far the reading of God's word, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, help us to understand your word and to submit to it. And to be encouraged by it, to be strengthened for battle by it. We confess that we need your spirit in us and among us to do this. So we ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Last week, I told you that the book of John has a load star. Children, do you know what a load star is? It's a load star is a star that guides ships on their course, keeps them on track. Sailors use a load star when they're out in the ocean. And the only thing they have is the stars to go by. And so the North Star, or Polaris, is a load star for ships, at least in the northern And John's gospel has a lodestar passage. It has two verses in the first chapter that keep us on track as we navigate through this inspired book. And I'm talking about John 1 verses 14 and 16. And the word became flesh and lived among us and we saw his glory. Glory as of the only begotten of the father, the only begotten son of the father. Full of grace and truth. Verse 16. And of his fullness we have received grace. And then more grace. Grace upon grace. All of John's gospel flows out of these two verses. All of Jesus' actions and teachings in this gospel are full of grace and truth. Everything Jesus does, he does as the God who became God flesh and dwelt among us so that he could give his people grace and more grace. The Lodestar in chapter one establishes that Jesus is fully God and fully man, full of grace and full of truth. And this Lodestar will continue to guide us through John, will continue to come back to it and it will help us find our way through chapter four over the next few weeks. The four main points in today's sermon, which you can find in your outline, are first, Jesus is purposeful. Second, Jesus is human. Third, Jesus is personal. Fourth, Jesus is superior. The first point, Jesus is purposeful. We talked about, in fact, last week, the entire sermon was on that one So I'll only summarize it. What we talked about now, everything Jesus does is intentional from eternity, he decreed everything that would happen, including this encounter with the Samaritan woman. So everything that happens fits into a plan that was devised by God himself, Jesus himself before time began, And this plan takes into consideration everything because God is always thinking about everything and always taking everything into consideration. Ephesians 1.11 says that God is working all things according to the counsel of his will. And, he, and he's doing this all the time. He never stops. Romans 8.28 says he, God is always working all things together for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. Everything Jesus does has purpose. The story of this woman at the well in Sychar of Samaria reminds us that Jesus is not just purposeful, though. He's graciously purposeful. The counsel of his will, which always gets worked out perfectly with no errors, is always full of grace and truth toward those who have been called according to his purpose. Those who love him or That he will cause to love him in due time. God does not promise that everything will feel like it is good for you. He only promises that everything is good for you ultimately. Our duty is to believe this promise. Even when our eyes and our hearts are telling us that it can't be true. All of Christ's actions and words toward this Samaritan woman end up working for her good and ultimately for her salvation. Verses one and three tell us that Jesus purposefully left Judah. The Pharisees figured that they figured out that Jesus was baptizing more disciples than John. So Jesus determined that it was time to leave It's time to. You go to Judea, it wasn't time for Jesus to die, which meant it was not time for him to stay in Judea. It wasn't time for him to stir things up and to gain the popularity and the following that would cause the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem to become envious and then to kill him. Jesus also had no interest in giving these Pharisees a reason to compare his ministry to John the Baptist's ministry. He didn't want that going on. They were on the same side. So he left Judea and headed to Galilee by way of Samaria. And verse 2 says that Jesus purposefully did not baptize. We don't know. It doesn't make explicit why, but it does make a point to tell us. And this probably means that he no longer baptized. He was not baptizing at that time. At least it means that, maybe more. But John says three times previously in chapters three and four that Jesus did baptize. And then here in verse two of chapter four, he clarifies and says that, well, Jesus did not baptize himself, or at least he was not baptizing himself at that point. But instead, he let his disciples do the baptizing. So perhaps Jesus baptized the initial disciples. But then very soon there came a point. Where he stopped baptizing altogether and just left that part of his ministry to the disciples that he had called and probably baptized. Paul did something very similar. So that we know that this is an important principle because Paul does something not exactly like it but very similar in 1 Corinthians 1. Paul thanks God that he only baptized a few people because he doesn't want people thinking that getting baptized by the apostle Paul Is something to boast about. Or is in any way. Part of the gospel. He wants people boasting about the good news itself. He wants people boasting about the cross of Christ. And it's transforming power. And it's work in their lives. Something similar seems to be on the mind of Jesus. Surely Jesus did not want. Being baptized by Jesus himself to become a distraction. Or a way of tallying up spiritual points for oneself. He didn't want it to be a distraction from the gospel that he came to preach and to establish in his work on the at the cross in his death and in his resurrection. So even Christ's act of not baptizing was full of grace and truth. Verses four to six say Jesus purposefully went to the well in Sychar of Samaria. And here's where we see the gracious purposefulness of Jesus most clearly in this passage. Jesus went to Samaria to meet a woman and to save her from her sins. And he had been planning to do this since before he created the heavens and the earth. Verse four says that Jesus needed to go through Samaria. Fairly strong word there. To get from Judea to Galilee. It's true that going through Samaria was the shortest, the easiest, the most direct route. From Judea in the south to Galilee in the north. Between them was Samaria. It's true. Samaria was right in the middle. But going through Samaria was not the only way to get between those two places. Jesus could have gone around as many other Jews did to avoid coming into contact with those unclean half-breed Samaritans. But Jesus didn't go around because he needed to go to Samaria. He needed to meet a woman at a well there. He had a divine appointment to keep. The Lord's itinerary is not being dictated, you see, by the Pharisees or by geographical needs. It's being dictated by the eternal counsel of his perfect will. Jesus is graciously purposeful in everything he does. Everything that happens is according to his plan. It works out for your good, ultimately for your salvation. Everything about his plan is wise and righteous. Now that truth is easy to understand, it's easy to accept, it's easy to believe until you or someone you know experiences intense suffering and pain. Or until you stop for just a few seconds and think about the pain and the suffering going on right now in a lot of places. It's always happening. Sometimes the pain and the anguish that I see some of you going through is enough to make me make it difficult for me to believe what I am called to tell you. Not long ago I received an email from an old friend from a, another city, different part of the country. He's a faithful man who teaches Bible at a theological institution. He was responding to something else that I had sent him about something else. But he spent most of his response updating me on the anguish that he has been experiencing uh, over the last six months from when he sent the email. His mother had just died. And during the previous six months, he had been walking with her and watching her endure Series of painful infections and back surgeries that culminated in her death. And his words to me were Suffice it to say, I've experienced the most difficult stretch of my life. It will take me some time to sort this all out, if I'm ever able. Death, I understand. The incredible suffering she endured is hard to process. Now, he's saying this from a standpoint of faith, not doubt. But what do you do with that? What do you say to someone who believes, but they just don't know how to process the purposes of God? Forget understanding them, just even moving forward in light of them. Oftentimes, you don't have to say anything, actually. Sometimes you just need to sit with that person in total silence. For seven days. As Job's friends did. But we must never forget. Even even when we are silent. And that's what God's calling us to do. we, We must never forget. That the Christian faith. Has something to say to us. It has something to say to believers. About their suffering. It doesn't have any comfort. For those who do not believe. Who are not trusting in Jesus. Who are not. Trusting in the wisdom of God. It does have something to say to believers. In fact, the Christian faith is the only religion or philosophy or worldview, whatever you want to call them, that has anything constructive to say about suffering at all. We have a sovereign God, a sovereign Lord Jesus, who is full of grace and truth who does everything with a gracious purpose in mind, who works everything for his glory and your good. That's why Paul could write in Romans 5, verses 3 to 5. And this is what I sent to my friend in the second email that I sent to him. Romans 5, 3 to 5. Not only that. But we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance and and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. All of this woman's life leading up to this point in her meeting with Jesus and everything that would happen after was ultimately... For her good. God even turns. Uses our sin. Which is against his will. But he uses it for good purposes. When we are repentant. When we are believing. In part he uses it to show us. The extent of his mercy. And grace. And so you can be certain that all your. Hardships include. A gracious purpose for you. All your strained relationships include a gracious purpose for you as you endure by faith. All your physical and emotional suffering include a gracious purpose for you. All of your life disappointments are for your good. Don't wait for God to explain this to you in detail. Before you are willing to believe it and accept it. Don't demand that you understand the logic of it. Before you decide to trust God with it. Just know that if God is for you. Nothing can be against you. This means no person. No thing. No circumstance. No situation. No hardship can ultimately be for your bad. As long as God is on your side working everything for your good. I said a lot more about that first point last week. If you're interested, the sermon was recorded. Let's move on to the second point. Jesus is human. He can sympathize with our weaknesses. The second half of verse 6 there says that Jesus sat by the well because he was weary from his journey. God became weary. And the reason Jesus became weary is that he is fully human. Remember what the Lodestar passage says, and the word became flesh. The Gospels go out of their way in places to remind us that Jesus was a man who shared all of our humanness, all of our human weaknesses Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Do you know what the first heresy in church history was? It was the first major false doctrine that the church had to deal with it wasn't arianism the belief that jesus was not fully god wasn't that that came later the first heresy that the fledgling church had to address was the belief that jesus was not fully human we see this even in the scriptures itself john addresses this false teaching in his epistles for example in second john the seventh verse, he writes, many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the Antichrist. There were some in the early church, you see, all the way back into the first century, who were saying that Jesus only appeared to be a man. His body, his humanness was only An illusion wasn't real because, after all, God can't be a man. This heresy is called docetism. The Bible teaches that Jesus had a human body and a human mind, a human heart, human will. He was and still is everything that a human is, yet without sin. That's not of sin is not of the essence of humanity, right? God did not create mankind with a sinful nature. Jesus lacks no humanness. There's no part of human nature that we can point to and say, Jesus doesn't have that. If it's a part of human nature, he has it. Like every other human, Jesus was born. Luke 2. He grew in wisdom and in stature, Luke 2 again. He became weary, John 4, our passage. He grew, I'm sorry, he got thirsty, John 19. He got hungry, Matthew 4, very hungry. He became physically weak, Luke 23. He marveled, Matthew 8. He became troubled in soul and spirit, John 12 and 13. He wept, John 11. He offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. Hebrews 5. He became sorrowful even unto death. Matthew 26. And when he rose from the dead, he had a real human body once again. He has a real human body now. A glorified one. It was essential for God to become human in order to save And this is the point. This is why this is important. He had to become a man so that he could take upon himself the penalty, the curse for mankind's sin. If Jesus is not fully human. Then humanity cannot be saved. One of the church fathers, Gregory of Nazianzus, put it this way. That which he has not assumed, he has not healed. That which he has not assumed, he has not healed. If Jesus has not assumed our humanity, if he has not taken on all of our humanity, then he cannot heal humanity. He cannot save us. The good news is that Jesus became a man, became human in full so that you might be saved. In full. One of the applications we can get from this passage is that when Jesus was weary, he did not sin, he did not become selfish. He was still fruitful even while he was weary. And we, as humans, can do the same we can become weary and we will become weary without sinning without that leading us to selfishness self-centeredness or failing in our responsibilities and duties one of the one of the things that we see Jesus doing not just in this passage but throughout the gospels is is becoming tired he became weary people were Pulling on him, tugging on him, draining him. And he often tried to find a way to get alone, but people wouldn't let him. And he had this perfect balance between rest, knowing that he needed rest, as human nature needed rest, and yet pouring himself out when he was weary. For example, when John the Baptist died and he heard about it, he went off to be alone, but the crowds followed him. And then in response to that, he didn't say go away. He healed them and then fed them. So we can learn from Jesus in his humanity how to be weary and yet how to be fruitful and obedient. And that's not an exhortation to never rest. We must rest, but we must also remember not to sin in our weariness. The third point on your outline Is that Jesus is personal. Jesus is a relational person. And he forms relationships with the people he saves. In verses 7 to 9. Jesus initiates a conversation with the woman at the well. And this conversation was the beginning of a personal relationship. That will last for eternity. This woman is with Jesus now. In heaven, loving him, and he's loving her. This relationship is gracious and it was and is full of grace and truth. Jesus pursued a personal relationship with this woman, even though she was an adulterer. Jesus pursued this woman, even though she was a Samaritan from the other side of the tracks. Not one of us. In fact, she was more than that. She was also a heretic, a heretic. Believing wrong things because the script, the scriptures that she read, the teaching that she received had errors. Notice all the things that Jesus did to pursue this woman and notice that everything he did was full of. Purpose and grace and truth. And notice how relational, how personal he is. And I want to draw your attention to just four details. First, he went through Samaria. So he could meet this woman. He decided to go that way. Second, he sent his disciples away to buy food. Now, very likely they're in Samaria. So who's going to be preparing this food? Who's going to be handling this food? The unclean Samaritans. And he did this so that he could be alone with this woman at the well to have a conversation with her about eternal matters. And if you think about it, all of Jesus' disciples didn't have to go. Surely they didn't all have to go to get the food. Some of them could have stayed back, maybe one of them at least. Why does Jesus send all of them? It appears that he wanted to have a personal conversation with this woman. Third. Jesus sat on the well. So that the woman would see him. So that he would be conspicuous. So that she could not avoid him. So that there would definitely be this encounter when she came to the well. To get the water that she needed. That she came to regularly to get. Fourth. He asks the woman for a drink. He engages with the woman. He asks this woman for a drink. A woman who he knew to be unclean. Sexually impure. Disreputable. Unrepentant. Heretical. Confused. Jesus is doing all of this to pursue... An unacceptable, quote unquote, unacceptable relationship. God is pursuing this woman because he wants to make her a member of his bride. He wants to save her. He wants to have her with him in heaven. He wants to be with her in the new heavens and the new earth forever. Jesus is not just personal. He is graciously Personal. His relationships with his people are full of grace and truth. Every believer has a similar story to this woman. Now, God may have saved you in the womb. Maybe that's when he came to you and turned his heart to him. He may have saved you after you had become a fornicator and a, re- a rebel. It doesn't matter if you are saved, it's because Jesus pursued you and initiated a relationship with you, a relationship that you were unable and unwilling to initiate with him on your own, apart from his grace. If you are saved, it's because Jesus rescued you from sin and death, which had a firm grip on you. Whether he saved you at the beginning of your life or at the end of a life of hard living. In spite of your pride and your anger and your lust and your greed and your worldliness and your laziness and your fearfulness, in spite of the rebellion that was in your heart at the moment you were conceived in Adam, God orchestrated all the events of history. To ensure that he met you and that you came to know him as your savior and your Lord. No matter how or when it happened. If you know Jesus as your savior now, it's because Jesus planned from all eternity to personally seek you out and to save you just as he did this woman. And Jesus didn't just want to begin a relationship with you. He wants to grow in that union that you have with Him. He wants you to know Him better. He he died for this union. He died for your union with Him. He died so that you could be in Him and that He could be in you. He takes this very seriously. And then he sought you out after he died for you. And now he wants you to seek him out with all of your heart. He promises that you'll find him when you do. He promises that you will draw closer to him when you seek him with all of your heart. He gave you ears to hear his voice. The voice of the good shepherd. He gave you ears he gave you an ear transplant so that you can hear his voice. Now he wants you to use those ears by studying his word. By hearing his word proclaimed and preached. By getting to know his voice better every day. So, How well do you know Jesus? How well do you relate to your Savior? How well do you know the one who died for you? What has been your response to? To the personal relationship that Jesus has established with you. Are you nurturing that relationship? Are you growing in your love for Christ? Is it something you talk about because it fills you with joy the way it did this woman. After she came to believe in this living water and the person who is giving it. Are you growing in your love for Christ How often do you talk to him? How often do you sit in his presence with an open Bible, being still and knowing that he is your God, the God who saved you? Do you know him better this year than you did last year? Jesus is personal and he desires to be personal with you in a relationship. Think about it. Jesus Christ... The God man, the maker of heaven and earth, the one who made you, who knit you together in your mother's womb, died for you, took your curse, took his father's wrath so that he could walk with you and know you and enjoy you as you journey through the life that he has given you. Don't wait until you get to heaven to enjoy what you can have now. The final point in your outline is that Jesus is superior. Verse 10, Jesus says to the woman, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Verse 11, the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as well as his sons and his livestock? So far the woman fails to realize that she is talking to someone who is greater than Jacob. But more importantly, that she's talking to someone who carries in himself the gift that only God can give. Living water is something only God can provide and give you. Which means it's something that Jesus can give. Verse 13, Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water, Jacob's well water, will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become... In him, a fountain of water springing up unto everlasting life. Jesus is the only man who can give anyone the divine drink that he or she needs, that you need, that I need. Jesus alone can impart life. And he imparts life by imparting the Holy Spirit. A few chapters later... In, in chapter 7 in verses 37 and 38 Jesus says if anyone is thirsty let him come to me and drink he who believes in me as the scripture has said out of his heart will flow what rivers of living water that's the live, that's the living water that our psalm talked about that Jeremiah talked about that Isaiah talked about in our Old Testament passage from last week. And the next verse in John 4 goes on to say that these rivers of living water that flow out of every believer what is it? It's the Holy Spirit. I'm sorry, John 7, not John 4. The next verse in John 7 says that these rivers of living water that flow out of every believer is the Holy Spirit. The gift of life that Jesus gives is the gift of the Holy Spirit. Another person of the Godhead. Another person who has a personal relationship with you, who is in you. The thing that Jesus wants this woman to see is that his living water gives superior satisfaction and superior life. Yeah, the living water running Into this well, which was fed by a spring of living, running water. Yeah, that water does give some kind of life. It sustains you. It's a gift from God. It satisfies you. It quenches your thirst. But there's a superior water. There's a superior well. There's someone superior to Jacob. And the water that he gives to his sons, his children. Remember, she said... His sons drank from this well. Well, the, the, the water that Jesus gives to his sons is superior and the children are superior. They have greater blessings than the blessings that Jacob gave his sons. And so he wants this woman to know that there is superior satisfaction and superior life in the living water that he gives. See, the the satisfaction that this woman is getting from her life, her life of sin and rebellion, is not truly satisfying her. She is living, but she is not experiencing what Jesus calls abundant life. Jesus says in John 10, 10, the thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. Abundant life, superior, more abundant life, superior life cannot be found in relationships on this earth. Cannot be found in relationships with any, with a relationship with anyone except Jesus. Companionship and Sexual intimacy do not satisfy the deepest thirstings of the soul. They can, they can bring pleasure and satisfaction, but they cannot quench our deepest longings. No amount of success or achievements or security or power or riches or influence or honor or popularity... No amount of earthly blessings can satisfy your cravings. So if you're constantly discontent, if you're constantly wondering when you're going to get to a place in life where you're going to just be at peace or at rest or the things that you've always wanted to feel or you're feeling on a daily basis, if if you still think that, if you haven't found it, it's because you're finding satisfaction in all the wrong places. You're looking for life where you cannot find it. It can only be found in Jesus and in the living water that He gives. So there's only one way to be satisfied. And that's by learning how to hunger and thirst for righteousness. If you haven't spent a lot of time learning how to hunger and thirst for For righteousness. That that probably explains. Why you could never be content. Or at peace. Or find rest. When you develop a hunger and a thirst. For God. For his kingdom. For righteousness. God says all the rest will be given to you. And he says that he will. Satisfy your thirst with the living water. Satisfy your hunger with the bread of heaven. This is a promise that Jesus makes very explicitly. In Matthew 5, 6. Which I'm going to leave you with. Blessed are those who hunger. And thirst for righteousness. For they. Shall be satisfied. Let's pray. Father. Help us. To thirst after the living water. That you. Have given us that is ours. Help us to thirst after after it to ask for it and to drink it and to find life and satisfaction in it and in it alone help us to do this in the power of your holy spirit who is that living water in jesus name amen